0: First of all, what is the Jesus Prayer? The normal formula, if you like, for the Jesus Prayer nowadays um, is the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, sometimes adding to that a sinner. So, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. But it can be abbreviated um, and sometimes... um, And some books talk about how it can be abbreviated and emphasise ways in which it can be abbreviated. So, for instance, um, Father David Gier, who lived most of the latter part of his life in London, said that the only crucial bit of the prayer was, in fact, the name Jesus, or maybe the name Lord Jesus. So that's what the prayer is. The other sort of fact, if you like, uh, bit of information, is that that you'll find that in, you sometimes find Orthodox using something looking like this, which is a prayer rope. Um, unlike the rosary, it's, it's not beads, but knots. But in fact, actually, in some, parts, some Orthodox countries, it does look, look just like a rosary, and it does consist of beads. In um, Romania, I've come across um, prayer ropes that actually are a necklace, made beads. Um, but it consists of a series of knots that's got a hundred um, they can be much much bigger really. um, some um, some bishops and monks sort of go around with very sort of elaborate well, know, things, like 250 uh, <laughs> things with, with, with very elaborate, this bit here which is the cross is often very elaborate and splendid. Um, Father Sophroni who I'll mention later on Who founded the monastery in Essex? Um, He used to insist that these prayer ropes are not fashion accessories and that people are not to wander around with them, sort of publicly, sort of doing them, putting them on their wrists and things like this, or having them as it were hanging from their belts. He disproved this. He said, have them out when you're using them, otherwise, they're not fashion accessories. The prayer rope itself, I think, is actually quite recent. I, I don't think it goes, the actual rope itself probably doesn't go back much much earlier than the 18th century. Uh, and why it evolved, I'll mention in the course of later on. Um, so those are the two things. That's, that's the, the Jesus prayer, is that prayer. Um, that is a prayer rope. It's called, in, in Russian, it's called a Chotki. Um, in Greek, it's called a komboskini. Um, The origins of the prayer itself, well, the origins of the prayer really go back, at least to the Gospels, if not earlier than that. Um, In the Gospels, we hear of people calling out to Jesus. There's a blind man, for instance, who calls out, Lord Jesus, or Son of David, have mercy on me. And then there are stories that our Lord tells about people who pray, and when he says what their prayer is, it is a short phrase, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, or Lord, cleanse me, a sinner, the prayer of the publican. But the essence of these is not that they're a formula. The essence of these prayers in the Gospels is that they're cries for help. And that is essentially what the Jesus Prayer is. It is, more than anything else, It is a prayer addressed by a human being to God, and it is a a call for help. If you then sort of look through the history of the Christian tradition about prayer, in the early centuries we've got very little evidence as to what words Christians used when they prayed. We know a little bit about what words they may have used in a strictly liturgical context. We know quite a bit about when Christians prayed. They prayed in the morning and in the evening and at midday and at night. We know something about sort of how they prayed, what posture. They prayed up, on the whole, standing up. All the early treatises on prayer emphasize that Christians are just stand up when we pray. We stand in the presence of God because as baptised Christians, as people who have been accepted by God, forgiven in baptism, we can stand boldly in his presence and talk to God. We have the right to do this. Um, And in most of the Christian Eucharistic liturgies, the words that introduce the saying of the Lord's Prayer make this point, that we have freedom to speak before God. Therefore, we can, with boldness, with parisiia, with openness, direct God. We can say something to God. We don't need to be ashamed or afraid. But in the, but from what, what survives the early Christians, what Christians actually said when they prayed, we don't know very much. Then with the beginnings of the monastic literature, we begin to get a little bit more of a hint of the kind of words that people use. And that really is perhaps the beginning of the tradition of the Jesus Prayer. Cassian, who was, um, who actually you know about now anyway, but Cassian who was, who went and lived among the monks in the Egyptian desert at the end of the fourth century, and then after the condemnation of Evagrius, or condemnation rather of the, of, of the so-called Origenist monks, um, left and came west, and wrote a number of books for months in the west about how to pray and how to conduct the monastic life. With Cassian, we have an idea which he puts over of praying in short prayers, concentrating your prayer into a short phrase, and then repeating it. Not repeating it over and over and over again, but, but using it, and then using it again and then using it again. And the phrase that he, in fact, um, talks about, he gives the impression that there's, there could be all sorts of different phrases, is the verse from the Psalms, O oh God, come to my help. And this is the phrase that he suggests that we use. The way Cassian seems to envisage this is that if we're trying to pray, as Kim said, as we just heard from Kim, The first problem we find in prayer is attention. We know that the heart of prayer is to be attentive to God. And the first thing we find out is that this is very difficult. Our attention keeps on wandering off. And one of the ways that Cassian suggests we use these short prayers are ways of drawing our mind back to attend to God. And so as soon as we find ourselves our mind wandering off, Cassian says, say, oh God, come to my help. And this will draw your mind back to God, draw your attention back to God. But I think it's also worth remembering at this point and emphasising that that Cassian is suggesting that you pray for help. He's not suggesting that you use a form of words just because it's a form of words. The words have a meaning and the meaning is a cry to God for help. And so, prayer in some sense is not, in this context, is not really a technique. It is actually a cry to God for help. It is engagement with God, asking him to help in keeping our mind on him. It's not a sort of technique that, 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 that you repeat that works on its own. So perhaps it does work of its own to some extent. But the point of it is that it is a cry to help, for help. And then if we look through the, the mainly through the monastic tradition from the fifth century onwards, we find that this idea that short prayers are best uh, is constantly repeated. And reasons are given, various different reasons are given, One reason that is often given is that you can easily remember it. Uh, Instead of sort of going on and on and on with some great long prayer to God, um, which you'll probably forget and get lost in the middle of or whatever, a short prayer is all that's necessary. All that you need to ask God is for help. So, leave it like that. But as early as the 5th century, we begin to find references to a short prayer that includes the name of Jesus. Um, the first reference to what might be the Jesus Prayer, though we can't be sure, um, is a chance reference in a work that belongs to the middle of the 5th century by a Greek bishop um, and also a monk called Diodicus, uh, who was Bishop of Photiki, which is in the Epiros um, in what is now northern Greece. What is
1: his name?
0: Diadocus, D I A D O C H O S. We know almost nothing about it, but he left a work, uh, which was a, a hundred chapters, a century. And in this, at one point, he says that when the demons start to clamour when we find um, ourselves oppressed by thoughts of evil, the way to resist is to use, and he says, he's, instead of, is, is, he, he uses an expression which gives the impression, he means a prayer that begins with the word Jesus. He says, use the Jesus. Toh Jesu. Toh is neuter, so what's coming after it is some sort of phrase. And he presumably means a phrase that includes or maybe begins with the word Jesus. But he says no more. And then in the later tradition we find from time to time references that make one, that suggest to one that there is a tradition developing of using some sort of of short phrase which includes the name of Jesus. And this is used as a way of drawing our attention back to God. (coughs) It's part of, essentially part of private individual prayer. Round about the beginning of the second millennium, you begin to get more developed works connected with the notion of the Jesus Prayer. Um, And the idea that long, if you like, the monastic life could consist of an essentially eremitical life in which one spent long periods of silent prayer in which the Jesus prayer could be used to make this possible. Um, And the monks of the 14th century um, who caused controversy because they claimed that in their prayer they could behold the uncreated light of the Godhead. (coughs) These monks, it's generally thought, were monks who we were praying the Jesus Prayer because the two traditions seem to sort of stick together at that point. And then just two other bits of history. The end of the 18th century, a collection of ascetic texts was put together and published in Venice uh, because the Greeks weren't allowed to use printing presses in the Ottoman Empire. Um, so they, their printing presses were outside the empire, and Venice was the most important of these places. And this is a book called the Philokalia, which is a Greek word that, whatever anybody tells you, simply means an anthology. Sorry, nice. it simply means an on, anthology. Anthology, yeah. That's all it means, Philokalia, in Greek. It just means an anthology. It's true that you can sort of divide it up and make it mean love the beautiful, but no Greek would imagine that's what philokalia meant. Philokalia just means an anthology. Um, I suppose behind it, there's the idea that an anthology consists of beautiful bits. Um, And indeed, anthology is another Greek word for the same thing. Anthology is a collection of flowers and things. So there is an idea that there are beautiful bits there. But the word anthology doesn't a Greek wouldn't naturally break it down and think of it as being the love of the beautiful. It's just as work anthology. This is published in 1782. It's a very big book. Well, it's a, it's in two volumes, running to about 100, sorry, running to about 1,500 pages of, of double columns, very beautifully produced. Um, and the Philokalia is a collection of ascetic texts. Um, from the 4th century right through to the 15th century um, which is focusing on the tradition of hesychastic prayer and the use of the Jesus prayer. Though it's only towards the end that you get much actually about the Jesus prayer itself. What was that name? Hesychastic? Hesychastic, sorry. I'm using all these words but I shouldn't have it. Hesychasm is from another Greek word which means quietness. And a hesychast, ishikastis in Greek, just meant, uh, is another word for a hermit, somebody
1: who lives a life of quietness. But it, it comes to... use in the words, we just
0: don't understand. Us. Anyway, I'll say, if it, but if it, just, just go on and speak up when I use words you don't know and I'll explain it to you. A hesychasm is often used to describe um, to describe a form of monasticism that focuses not so much on the liturgical life of the monk, but much more on the individual life of prayer of the monk. Um, And it's got a particular use in relation to the 14th century monks who, I've mentioned, caused controversy. They were called hesychasts, and the movement was called Hesychasm, and it's sort of entered into the literature. now, the Philip is, as I say, it's a very substantial work put together at the end of the 18th century. And it, on the face of it, you might have thought, well, you know, it would sort of lurk in monasteries read from time to time and become more or less forgotten. But actually not. It was very quickly translated into Church Slavonic um, by um, a southern Russian who had been a monk on the Holy Mountain and then went back up. Not quite into Russia but into Moldavia and in the monastery there. And the, when he translated it, he did as as, as Russians often do when translating Church he simply translated Philokelia by breaking the bits of the word up and came out with um Dobrotelubia. Lubia, Lubia is love. And Dobrota is good. So and that does just mean in, 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 in Russian it would sound like love of the beautiful. It's not a word for a, um, an anthology. It's just what's called a calc, or a word just made up of the of words. And the Dobrotluby it was the translation of the whole of the Philokovia, but it was fairly substantial work. And it became hugely popular in Russia. Um, It was um, copied and printed. Um, It became a work that was read not just by monks, but was read by ordinary Christian people who wanted to um, be serious about the life of prayer. And at the end of the 19th century, um, a a book which was to become very famous was published, which was called The Way of the Pilgrim. Or in Russian, it is in fact, The Sincere Tales Uh, Of a pilgrim to his spiritual father. The word pilgrim, um, stranik, means literally a wanderer, not so much a pilgrim going somewhere, though at actually one point the pilgrim does say he's trying to get to Jerusalem. But the straniki, the people wandering from a state to a state, was a feature of 19th century Russia. If any of you read Tolstoy, um, War and Peace, for instance, you come across quite a lot of these straniki, um, Maria um, is very keen on them and looks after them. Um, and they were just a feature. But some of these, steraniki, seemed to be very interested in the Jesus prayer and found the Jesus prayer a way of praying as they were wandering from place to place. Um, though the actual, the ostensive author of the way of the pilgrim actually carried the Dobrof with him in his knapsack. It must have been a very deep knapsack. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I spent a lot of time reading it. And in the 19th century, in a very strange way, in Russia, the dollar of the and the practice of Jesus' prayer became a popular thing that moved out from the monastic life of hermits to being a way in which ordinary people could pray. Because again, it fits quite easily. You know, you, you, it's not difficult. You don't need any book or anything with you. You can do it wherever you are. And this what happened in the 19th century. And in the 20th century, um, the, the translation of the way of the pilgrim popularized the Jesus prayer. And I think one could say that in the 20th and nowadays that Jesus prayer is probably read, uh, is probably used rather, more than has ever been. Um, and used not simply within the Orthodox tradition, but within many other Christian traditions and perhaps even beyond. So there's the history bit. Now what's the point of the Jesus Prayer? How does it work? What's, what's it all about? Well, I've already indicated that part of what the point of the Jesus Prayer is that it is a way of enabling one to pray quietly. It's a way of praying as a way of being as you write, rather than a praying as a way of saying things. It's not a prayer book, it's not lots of stuff for you to say. It's connected it's it's really more about a kind of prayer where you're trying to remain in quietness for some period half an hour, quarter of an hour, several hours, whatever. So it's a way of trying to create and preserve the silence in which one can be attentive to God. But as I already emphasised, it is actually a prayer. It's not. Well, I'm going to say mantra. I'm not, but I, I'm not sure I wanted to say that because I don't really know enough about the theory of mantra in Indian religions. But what I mean when I say it's not a mantra is what I mean. I, I mean it's not some sort of self operating system, technique. It's meant to be a prayer crying out to God for help. And the form that the Jesus' prayer eventually came to take, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon you, sinner. That form becomes more or less fixed because it seems to contain everything that a Christian would want to say in prayer. What I mean by that is that it is not just a cry for help. It is a cry for help. Have mercy is a cry for help. But it's also a confession of faith. To say Lord Jesus Christ is to confess that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. It is the heart of the Christian profession. To say Lord Jesus Christ our God is to go a step further and is to see Jesus as the Son of the Father. St Paul tells us that we can only ever say Lord Jesus in the power of the Spirit. So to say Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and to mean it, is in fact in some way to invoke the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, to invoke the Holy Spirit to come into our heart, to express our faith in Christ, and in the Trinity. So the prayer itself, the first part of the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, sort of encapsulates the essential parts, elements of the Christian faith, the belief in God as Trinity, and also the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God living on earth as a man. So it is in fact a confession of faith, as well as simply a prayer. But it is also a prayer, and it's a prayer for mercy on a sinner. So it is not simply a confession of faith, it is also a confession of our need for God, a confession of our sinfulness. And I think it's for these reasons that the prayer came to settle in this form. It contains everything that you need to say in prayer. question of silence. As Kim was saying, as we all know very, very well, achieving silence and prayer is very difficult indeed. And the main reason I think it's practice in a way is that, that if we sit down on our own, or stand, or kneel, or whatever, and try to Evoke the presence of God and be in His presence. What we very quickly find <clears throat> is a rather obvious thing, that <laughs> we're there too. with everything that we are, all our thoughts, our hopes, our fears, our desires, our longings some quite trivial. They're all there, too. I mean, try and pray very early in the morning. Get up. Sort of wash your face. get I mean, sort of reasonably sort of uh, awake. And then try and pray. Try and sit silently. <coughs> and what happens is that you start thinking about breakfast. Or you start thinking about what you're going to do. What the day has ahead for you. Or you start worrying about something that happened the other day before or how somebody has upset you and offended you and they really shouldn't have done it. Um, And very quickly you find that you're not actually sitting in silence at all. You're sitting in a quite sort of very noisy um, chamber, echoing chamber where all your thoughts are banging about. And the point of the Jesus Prayer in this context is that it does two things. On the one hand, the prayer for mercy is an acknowledgement that this person, this me, who is wanting to be in the presence of God is finding this very difficult because so much of me doesn't want to be there at all. So much of me is in fact somewhere else. And that bits of me that are somewhere else keep on coming along and sort of tugging at the shoulder and saying, look, I'm here. Um, it's very, very easy, I mean, even if you don't believe in demons, I'm not sure I don't, I think, I think that demons, I think probably do exist, but even if one doesn't believe in demons, it's very easy to see why people thought they were because the way in which these thoughts work are very like somebody coming along and saying, look, I'm here, yes. don't, you can't ignore me, you must pay attention to me, you must pay attention to what my needs, my thoughts are, and this me is part of me. And so the first thing that the Jesus Prayer does to address this problem is that Jesus Prayer confesses the problem. The problem is that we are caught up in what ultimately we, want to, we know we must call sin. But a lot of this is not quite so clearly defined as that. We're caught up, if you like, in attachments to various things that we may think we want to be in the presence of God, but an awful lot of us is so unaccustomed to being in the presence of God that that's the last place it wants to be. And then, and all this, all these bits of ourselves puts up the most unholy din, and there's no silence there at all. So the first thing that Jesus' prayer does is to confess this, to acknowledge this, because As we all know, the first way of dealing with any problem is to admit there is a problem. Um, To pretend there isn't a problem, there's no way of solving anything. But secondly, the use of the Jesus Prayer itself can be calming, can help us to draw our attention back to what it is that we want to be at the heart of our lives. God, Christ, the Holy Spirit. This is what we want to be. This is what we think, we say, we believe is the most real thing, the thing that that matters most of all. And so the prayer draws this back into our attention. Now, there there are actually various ways in which the prayer can do this. And I want to emphasize that, in a way that some of the books don't, that. There's nothing prescriptive, I think, about the Jesus Prayer. I mean, I think, that, I think one should admit to start off with, there are some people for well, whom it just doesn't work at all. Um, no. Some people, um, perhaps, many people I don't know, but certainly some people will not find the Jesus Prayer helpful. And if you don't, um, you shouldn't use that to add to your sense of sinfulness and adequacy. Um, no, it's just, there are different ways we're different people, we do different things, different people. And one of the ways in which the of Jesus Prayer is used, and, one of the, and perhaps I think this is what most people think of as use the use Jesus Prayer, is the, is the constant repetition of the Jesus Prayer. And that's where the, the prayer rope comes in. Because if you are going to repeat something slowly, having something like this is actually quite helpful because it gives you something for your fingers to do. Um, and it, 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 the mere fact of sort of saying the Jesus prayer on one thing, then pausing, and then moving on to the next and saying it again, that in some ways this soaks up some of the attention that otherwise would be scattered elsewhere. It also means you don't need to, if you say, suppose you want to say that you're going to give half an hour to this, You very quickly find out how long it takes, and so you know you don't need to have a little clock and keep on looking at the clock, and seeing where you've got to. Um, If you know that it takes 150, whatever, to get through half an hour, then you know that you've got to go through this one and a half times, and then you can forget about it and just get on with it. And so in all sorts of ways, that that way of using the prayer can work. But it doesn't work for everybody. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure, I I remember reading some time ago, the famous but now dead Anglican priest and poet, R.S. Thomas, saying that that uh, somebody he'd heard people talking about um, a performed prayer where you said something over and over and over again, and he said that I could not do that. I'd go mad or I'd fall asleep. Um, and there are and that that will be the case for some people, sometime, or maybe for some people all the time. Another way of using the Jesus Prayer, if you, look very, if you look a bit more carefully at some of the um, Russian teachers on prayer of the 19th century, particularly a person who is, I think, the most interesting and best of the Russian writers called Theophan the Recluse, who was priest, became a bishop, and then resigned from being a bishop after a couple of years. Something wasn't for him. And went and lived um, in, in the forest. A life of withdrawal. is why his And Theophan wrote in this withdrawal, actually, was not left alone. I mean, endless people wrote to him, and he wrote back. Um, and his letters were collected, and out of his letters, there are various books that um, contain teaching on prayer. And one of the things that Theophan seems to envisage is the way you use the prayer is not not in this repeating it time and time and time again. But rather, using the prayer, first of all, as a way of calming us down to start praying. So you'd say the prayer a few times until you felt calm, and then you'd stop and remain in this silence. Until you found that the silence was ebbing away, and then you'd use the prayer again to bring you back. But Stefan seems to envisage a form of prayer where the Jesus prayer is not repeated over and over and over again, but used as a way of, as it were, getting into the silence. Or now I'm going on to my second theme: getting into the heart. One of the things that's characteristic about the literature, the literature about the Jesus Prayer, many of the medieval literature, the patristic literature and also the modern literature, is that is the notion of the heart and the idea that we pray with the heart. Now, what I mean by the heart is, I think, what the Bible means by the heart. That in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, reference the made to the heart. Psalm 50 or Psalm 51 refers to the heart about a half a dozen times. It talks about a broken heart. God will not despise... Um, and the, the the heart is obviously the part of me that is central, that feels most deeply, that is is, is, is where I really am. The heart is opposed to what? And this something where we have to be rather cautious because it doesn't mean the heart in the modern romantic sense of the word as the centre of the emotions. Psalms, for instance, talk about the heart being a place where our thoughts come from. So it's obviously not entirely different from the mind. But it's more than the mind. It's not, it's not just simply the thinking faculty. And this is, there are two points to make about this reflection on the heart in this Jesus Christ tradition. The first is that The first is that the heart is something that we need to discover. That we tend to suppose that we know who we are and where we are and what we are. And we just sort of take it for granted. But one of the first things I think one discovers when one tries to pray seriously is that we are not at all clear who we are, really, anyway. The distractions that come up in prayer are not just distractions. They are, in fact, reflections of bits and pieces of ourselves. And sometimes these bits and pieces are bits and pieces that either we don't know about or that we're rather ashamed of. Um, we often, at, often people, I think, are very surprised at what thoughts occur to them during prayer. I didn't think i was like that. Or sometimes I think, in another context, we find that we do things and we react in ways that we're surprised at. We didn't think we were like that. And then we discover there's a bit of us there that we weren't aware of. It seems to me that the Christian ascetic tradition has actually not got very much to learn from Freud the Christian ascetic tradition is very well aware of the fact that there are hidden bits of ourselves that we have sort of hidden away and we don't want to know about them. But they're there and hiding bits of ourselves away is in fact not the best way of dealing with things. What we need to do is to confront all these bits of ourselves so that we can become whole again. One of the bits of the Christian tradition that is, I think, perhaps most interesting and illuminating on this are a collection of homilies that were written in the end of the, um, well, they're called homilies, a lot of them aren't really, um, written at the end of the fourth century, called the Macarian homilies, ascribed to Macarius, one of the Desert um, mm-hmm. Fathers. Um, well, they, they can't actually belong to him, they don't come from that part of the world, but forget that. They exist. And the Macarian homilies present a very interesting picture of what it is to be human. He says that it's it's as if we consist of sort of a kind of house with lots of endless little corridors and rooms and things. Bits of it we've no idea about, but they're all part of us, and they all will sort of, we'll stumble upon them one day or another. And we'll find that the way we act, the way we behave, the ideas that occur to us um, come from all these little sort of hidden away corners that we're unaware of. And then what happens in the Christian life of prayer is that all of the, the if you like, the whole house is put into lightness. It becomes light so that we know where everything is. And we begin, it, it, it becomes a single thing. But what we normally experience is a, a state of tremendous dividedness where bits of us, particularly bits of us that we don't really like very much, have been sort of shuffled off somewhere. <laughs> and in prayer, they come back. We discover them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, the first thing about the heart is that trying to find... So the first thing about the heart is that we're actually trying to find it. What is happening in prayer is that we're trying to discover where our heart is. Another thing about the... Macarian homilies that I think interesting in this context. One of the words that the Macarian homilies, that the writer of the Macarian homilies, used to describe sin is he says that our sins are, the Greek word is atopos, which literally means out of place. In other words, they're coming from somewhere we didn't think was there. That we find that that what we are doing is coming from a bit of ourselves that we weren't really aware of, or only half aware of. And that the What happens in prayer and what happens as a result of the Holy Spirit coming upon us is that these hidden away bits become known and become a part of who we are.
1: And as this happens,
0: we become more and more in control of who we are and we are acting more and more from our heart rather than from some sort of distant bit of ourselves that just happens to feel it wants to at the moment. See the Father Recluse talks quite a bit about the way the Jesus prayer, the use of the Jesus prayer, is a way of discovering the heart. So what we're doing in prayer, a lot of what we're doing in prayer, in fact, is not yet praying, but trying to find out who we are, where we are, so that we can pray with the heart. One of the sayings of, that is, uh, that, uh, you've probably heard, because it's, it's very, very commonly repeated, is that what a Christian is doing is pr- in prayer is he is placing his mind in the heart and standing before God. What Siofan thinks that we're doing is that, that mm. placing the mind in the heart means that The source of everything that we do, the source of all our thoughts, our desires, and so on, are become united. That in the heart, we act from the heart rather than acting from other bits and pieces of ourselves. I mean, a lot of us nowadays act a lot of the time from the mind. We plan things, we sort things out. Um, We've got lots and lots of devices that help us to sort things out, but they tend to sort things out really at a cerebral level. But what we need to do is to take the cerebral level down into the heart, down into the heart, the centre of our personality, so that we act from there. And Theophan sees the Jesus prayer as a way of achieving this. So the Jesus prayer is, is sometimes referred to as the prayer of the heart. But here I really want to emphasise that the prayer of the heart is what is the real thing. Praying with the heart, praying from the centre of our being. That's the thing we're attempting to achieve. That's what's important. The Jesus Prayer is a way of achieving this. It may be for you, it may not be for you. There may be other ways of doing it. What the Jesus Prayer is doing, I think, is true for everybody. That what the Jesus Prayer is doing is calling on the Holy Spirit calling on Christ, if we like, to send the Holy Spirit into our hearts, so (coughs) that we become more and more aware, attentive, focused, more and more whole. And as such people, we can then pray properly, and also act properly. Yeah, I think that's that's something which I think I heard Kim say earlier on, uh, but I think it's very, very important, is that attention is indivisible. In the sense that the attention that we're trying to achieve in prayer is the same kind of attention that we need listening to somebody else. That if we can't attend to God in prayer, we'll probably find it's tied up with our not actually paying paying attention to other people either. An attentive person is capable of being attentive in prayer and in relation to other people. They go together. I mean, it's just another illustration, if you like, of the fact that the commandment is a twofold commandment to love God and to love our neighbour. And they go together. If you think you can love God without loving your neighbour, you know, we're told very directly in, in, in say, St. John's First Epistle that we're deceiving ourselves. And similarly, I think we're deceiving ourselves if we think that we're capable of being attentive to God in prayer and don't try and practice attention in relation to the people around us. They go together. That the one is a test of the other. But you might say, that attention to the neighbour is a test of the reality of our attention to God. But trying to achieve attention to God is one of the ways in which we achieve attention to somebody else, <coughs> attention to other people. to silence the heart. And the third thing is the name. It seems to me that one of the reasons why the Jesus Prayer came to be so important within the Orthodox tradition is that it seemed to sum up many of the things that were central to that tradition. And I think that these things can be summed up under the notion of the name. Right from the time of Plato, probably even before that, there have been different ideas as to what a name is. Um, We call flowers by various names. We call people by various names. Now, what, what are these names? Mm. Are they just labels so that we could perfectly well be called something else? I and mean, you perfectly well call a buttercup a buttercup daisy if you wanted to and it wouldn't make any difference. You just have to remember, you know, remember to say buttercup is a daisy every time you saw I mean, are they just labels? And you could have perfectly well have quite different names. Or is it something deeper? Well, it's a very, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting and complicated philosophical problem, which um, certainly Plato is very exercised about and continues throughout the Greek tradition and throughout the religious tradition of philosophy. Um, I mean, on the one hand, it looks as if names are in some ways like labels, because the, the words that we use for things um, vary according to languages. In, in the French word for for a Buttercup, and the English were different. Not only that, one thing I find actually very fascinating. Um, if you, if, if um, last time I remember when I was um, on holiday in the Alps, and in the Austrian Alps, and the, the Austrian managers too, very keen on labelling everything and giving masses and masses of information. So every, every sort of stopping point, there's a great um, poster with all the different flowers you might find and all their names, so you know what they are and what to call them. What I find very interesting, though, is that, that the German words for name, for flowers, group the flowers together in a different way from the way the English words for flowers do. And so flowers that we associate with one another by calling them, you know, kind of an example. You know, it's an example when I do this sort of thing. But, um, The way in which we associate, for instance, the way in which we talk about, dead nettles and live nettles and think of them both being nettles. In other languages they're not thought to be the same kind of thing at all, and of course they're not the same kind of thing, they only look similar. Um, So labels, it's not only that different words are used, but the different words sort of map onto reality differently, so perhaps things are just labels. But the other side is, no, they're not just labels, there's something more, much more, to a name than a label that could perfectly easily be changed. I mean, think for instance of your own name and think of how you think of yourself as being who you are called. And how it would be rather different if you were called something else? That we associate, all our experiences are the experiences that we associate with the person that we are called. And that to change the name would be something of a change of character too. Which is perhaps actually partly the reason why, um, traditionally, and still in the Orthodox Church, when somebody becomes a monk, they change their name. Because the idea is that they are actually changing something about themselves, entering onto a new life, a different life, and a new name is given as an indication of it. I hope you don't mind me interrupting, but no. women change their name all the time. I mean, one reason why I wouldn't get married is because I was adamant of changing my surname. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good example, too, in that, 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 I mean, that actually tells you quite, well, it's a big, I don't want to go into this, but the, but the, <laughs> the, the way in the which, but no, but the way in which names are changed <laughs> is actually extreme, is, is very interesting, and, mm-hmm. and it, 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 it is something to do with the way in which women's status is thought of. I mean, it's very, very clear in Greek, for instance, where you probably notice all men have names in the nominative, all women have names in the, in the genitive, because they belong to somebody, mm. either their father or their husband. And it's very very clear, the the surname of a Greek lady uh, is a a genitive, of means of somebody. Um, And that must tell you quite a lot about, I mean, that's more than a label. This is actually telling you something about um, what they are and where they belong, if you like. Now, in the Bible, Certainly as far as personal names are concerned, and I think it probably goes beyond that, but certainly as far as personal names are concerned, names are thought of as being significant. And in particular, the name of God is thought, is more than a label. In fact, it's both more and less than a label. The name of God in the Old Testament is less than a label, because nobody knows what it was, because it was only ever used in the temple by the high priest, Um, and therefore... It's not much of a label, because we don't actually know what the name was. I mean, some scholars think they know what the name was, but that, they're guessing. And their guess may be a good guess, but it's only a guess. The, the Hebrew Bible um, was, was written so that the name of God is, a cle- is just four letters, so called tetragrammaton, which are not voiced, so you don't know how to pronounce it, you just know what the, the consonants are. Um, And that name was pronounced in the temple as part of the high priestly blessing. and That was the only time it was ever pronounced. And that, I think, meant that the pronunciation of the name of God in the temple by the high priest was not just using God's name, telling him that he was Zeus rather than somebody else. It was actually an utterance of the name that brought the presence of God into that place. The the pronunciation of the name of God by the high priest in the priestly blessing was a blessing. It was effective, it was active. And and, And this, I think, is borne out by the way in which, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, God is represented as saying that this is the place where I will place my name. That's where the temple is going to be, that's where my name will be or the tabernacle in the, in the wilderness, was where the name of God was.
1: Just uh, uh, yes. to ask on that. <coughs> I've always understood that the reason why they said place the name was that you tended to define or to explain God or point to God by an attribute rather than mm-hmm. the Godhead, because they were is sacred. Mm. So I've always understood that if you said place your name somewhere, or place your spirit somewhere, mm or even place your word somewhere, mm-hmm. you were actually saying God. You, you, the, the, by saying the, God's name would dwell mm-hmm. there, it was just a, a sort of convention to say you were actually talking about God himself. But
0: That's certainly true, to some extent. But I think, I think that there's, there's... Given the mystery about the name itself, I think there's more to it than that. This is the place where the name is to be pronounced. And it is here that God is here. He will hear His people. I yeah. um, mean, mm-hmm. the, the temple was the place where the name could be pronounced yeah. and where God's presence was there in grace and forgiveness and love.
1: Very. If you sorry, it's one of the. If you in the, um, uh, Compline prayer, yeah. the Compline responses. Mm-hmm. We are called by Your name, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people say that's very odd. Why are we called by God's name? And and I always mm. took called by your name, called by you. Yes.
0: That's true. Yeah. But that's true because the name is God. Yes. yes. Um, it's not just a label. Yes. It's true because yes. to talk about the name of God is to talk about God himself, yes. which I think is the, the point that I wanted to make about that Old Testament usage. Mm, that, that was perhaps in the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, the name could be, is just in the temple. Mm. But now, after
1: Christ... There's one going on to say <laughs> <laughs> Yes,
0: I mean, and you see, it seems to me that, that, that in, the, in the New Testament, the name becomes the name of Jesus. And that name can be pronounced, as you say, anywhere. Anywhere can be hallowed by the, by the saying of the name of Jesus, by the praying of the name of Jesus, because the praying of the name of Jesus, an invocation of Jesus, and as the Lord says himself, that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So the utterance of the name is in fact a making real of the name. Bulgakov, one of the people who, who, who wrote quite a bit about the name, uh, sorry, Bulgakov, who was um, one of the Russian emigres, um, came to Paris in the 20s, was the first dean of the, the Russian um, theological seminary, there, which still exists, um, he was very interested, he was a philosopher, and was, uh, wrote a book on the name, The Philosophy of the Name. And one of the things he says, the great privilege Christians have, compared with the Old Testament, is in the Old Testament, it was only in the temple they could pronounce the name of God. But now, we can pronounce it in any individual Christian heart. We can pronounce the name of, of God, pronounce the name of Jesus, and that the use of that prayer is a prayer that brings the, the grace, the blessing, the presence of God. Is not to be confused with a novelist, I assume. So there's a novelist called Bulgakov. Bulgakov, Mikhail Bulgakov, was yeah. probably a relation. But oh, we yeah. don't we don't actually know quite how close. He came, I mean, They say, probably a relation, because Mikhail Bulgakov, yeah, who wrote The Master of Margarita and various other novels. Um, was younger than Bulgakov, by a generation. Uh, lived, as you, as you know, in Soviet Russia. Um, he came from the same province, Orgel province. Um, the name's not very common, so it is quite likely there's a relationship, but we don't know how close the relationship is. Um, but but there are, it, it's, the, the point you make is a, is, is a good point. I mean, it is a... It's a um. And so the third thing about the Jews' prayer is that the Jesus Prayer, I think, became important in the Orthodox tradition because it was felt, believed, that the use of the, use of the name, the pronunciation of the name, was actually effective. That, it was, that the, the, the repetition of the name was a way of evoking the divine presence. And I think this fits in with other aspects of of orthodoxy. I mean, just to give you one example, another aspect of orthodoxy that people are very familiar with, uh, perhaps the most familiar with, um, is is our use of icons, as on the icon of the wall. Um, That icons are, are a feature of both private and public orthodox worship. And the essential reason why they are is because in the icon we are represented, the face is represented. And so, the icon reminds us that prayer is about a face-to-face encounter with Christ, a face-to-face encounter with the saints. And of course, when we encounter a face, we give it a name. And so it seems to me that the two things things are coming together, the, the emphasis on the face, the emphasis on the name, the
1: emphasis on presence, these all fit together.